Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CDC. Thanks for joining us here on What's the Data Point. If you have or haven't noticed, we've moved to a little bit more of a bi-weekly schedule, but still bring you some great episodes with some very interesting conversations and here and there sprinkling in, of course, some of the audio from some great CBC events. So we thank you for listening and being with us. There's some really great past episodes. If you've missed any, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And you can, of course, find them at the Gotham Gazette and CBC websites. If you have feedback for us, tell us on Twitter. I'm at TweetBenMax and Maria's at Maria Doulis. So without any further explanation, let's get to today's great episode Today, we are joined by Greg David and Kara Eisenpress. Greg is the director of the Ravage Fiscal Reporting Program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY, and Kara also teaches at Newmark, and they both also regularly contribute to Crane's New York business, where they recently co-wrote a feature piece that we're discussing today, and it is called The State of Inequality, New York's Safety Net is Made Possible by the Very Inequity it targets. Thank you both for being here. Looking forward to this discussion. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And to kick off that discussion, Maria will give us a little more information to set the stage. Here is today's data point. 18.6%, the poverty rate in New York City. It varies from a low of 13.2% in Staten Island to a high of 28.6% in the Bronx, the highest in New York State. This rate is based on the federal poverty line, which is based on annual income of $12,140 for an individual and $25,100 for a family of four. Our guest today wrote a feature describing the services New York City provides to low-income individuals and families and explain how those services are funded and what the risk could be to that funding. Welcome, Kara and Greg. So why don't we start here? Greg, maybe give us sort of the top line general findings and then Kara, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the process that, that got you there, you know, what exactly you did to, to pull all this together, um, if that works for you, or you can swap that. But let's let's give the top line sort of uh, how-to here. That works for us. Okay. Um, so here's what the top line is. Inequality in New York is always talked about in terms of the gap, the amount of income that the 1% or the 10% have versus everyone else. And frankly, that's sort of the conversation nationally and locally. At the same time, the discussions of the safety net are almost entirely about federal policy. And increasingly, and in part because I noticed a few comments in Craig Paul Krugman's work that I read, um, and because of my work at the Ravage Program, I said, you know what, let's look at state and local policy impact. So what we have found is that New York State, but especially New York City, has provided a safety net unmatched by anywhere else in America. And it has done that because New York is willing to tax extraordinarily rich people. It's not only just that our 1%, that the 1% are here, it's that the 1% in New York are extraordinarily rich and we tax them very heavily. So that's the that's the top line findings. That's the headline of the piece. Go ahead, Karen. So we set up work with reporters in three other states, in Georgia, Texas, and Washington State. And then we all went after a similar set of metrics um, about the safety net, about housing and the cost of living, 
And we basically tried to compare what each state and city, as much as we could, offered to people who were living, you know, in the bottom income percentiles. And, you know, we could have gone global, but we didn't. It was about looking at other American cities and states and seeing what they were doing for people who were struggling. And that was where we really found that there were just things that New York bothered to do that other states didn't didn't do. And more to the point, places like Georgia and Texas actually try to li- limit entitlements as much as they can. And New York tries to make sure that people who are eligible to get help get that help. So I sort of step back and set the stage a little bit, right? You know, there's the belief that the federal government is the best level to establish, fund, and regulate what should be the floor, like the basic safety net, right? And so the, the big poverty programs that we know and rely on, if you will, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, what used to be known as welfare, TANF, food stamps, they're all somehow linked to the federal government, right, with mostly by, backed by federal dollars. So the question then becomes how much more are states and local governments building on that and using their own resources to broaden and, and reinforce that safety net? And, and some do very little and some, like New York, do a lot? Right. So New York, take, take TANF. Um, so New York calls it family assistance. And so the state spent about a billion dollars on family assistance in fiscal 2018. That's from the federal government. But then when that benefit taps out for people at five years, the state ships in another half a billion dollars almost to pay for what they call safety net assistance, and that kind of patches up the net for people who have either exhausted or don't um, or aren't eligible for, for the TANF benefits. Um, and that program is, is cash, known as cash welfare, basically. Yeah, it's cash assistance uh, for families. And then the, the same thing to some extent for SNAP. I mean, it's a smaller program, but for there's $3 billion spent on food stamps in New York City. And then out of its own budget, the city spends another $25 million on emergency food assistance that goes through food banks and helps people fill in the gaps when they can't. And remember, the, another big issue that's happened, and this is because of the way Obamacare played out, is that states had the option to expand Medicaid or not. So Texas and Georgia did not expand Medicaid. They have uninsured rates more than twice ours. And then New York took an even further step that only Minnesota took in addition. And that is we created this essentials program, which it allows people above the Medicaid group to get very extensive health care um, coverage with very low, no premiums and very almost no deductibles. So we have actually provided comprehensive care to people in the bottom third or so of the income uh, spectrum. And as um, uh, Kara writes about in the story, our Medicaid program, which used to be under great criticism for being so expensive, has been greatly reformed. And not only is it somewhat less expensive, it is becoming ever more effective. And the story, in the story, we write about the way Montefiore, is, which is interestingly one of the most important medical centers in the city, one of the best medical centers, and extraordinarily dependent on Medicaid patients, is providing really good comprehensive and thorough care. So 
we've done something that other states haven't. And there are other states with good safety nets. But if you compare the New York Medicaid program to the California um, program, ours is so much better and does so much more. So that's one of the ways that we got to the conclusion that New York has the most robust safety net in the country. And we've, we've covered that on this podcast in a couple different episodes. We've looked at, at the state and, and Medicaid and some of the reforms and what's working and could be working better and costs and, and such. So as we think about what you've produced here, there are sort of, there are a few big takeaways, right? There's this idea that, as you've said, New York basically has the strongest safety net for those struggling that that's out there in, in the country. Uh, but the other big piece of your point, right, is that this is made possible by the tax code in, in New York and, and the, the tax in, system. In and the inequality. It's mm-hmm. because the rich are so rich in New York. So someone asked me uh, this week if I was making a moral point, you know, that inequality was good. I am not making a moral point. I'm making a factual point about how it works. Now, let's just look at the 1% in this regard. The 1% pay 40% of all the state income taxes. That's $20 billion. The 1% pay 43% of all the city income taxes. That's another $6 billion. That's an extraordinary amount of money from a very small number of people, and we can get it from them because they are so rich. Now, Texas and, Texas and, interestingly, Washington State don't do that. They don't have income taxes. So Texas is a conservative red state that claims that this is how come their economy grows. Washington's actually, in many ways, a progressive boom state uh, with tech driving it, and this is just a historical sort of anomaly. But New York State, according to a study we've used by a group called ITEP, Um, the rich, the 1%, pay about 11.5% of their income in taxes, all taxes. In Texas and Washington State, the figure's 3%. Texas, in particular, makes its rich, the lives of its rich, easier by making the lives of its poor harder. Georgia does almost the same thing, but they have an income tax, so actually the rich pay like 7%. And in this great anomaly, that's the way Washington proceeds, and while it's progressive in many ways, it can't fund social services because it doesn't have the money to to provide the kind of safety net we do because Jeff Bezos doesn't pay any income tax in Washington. It's fun for me to sit at a table where I'm not the one spitting out the numbers and the data points, but there there's so many good ones in in what you just you just gave. Um, and you know you don't have you were unable to sort of piece it all together in this piece about what this what the total value of this is, but it's enormous. So take the Medicaid program for example, it's over sixty billion dollars, right? So you're talking about enormous sums of money and tremendous amount of support. Um, you know, so that's I an think inter- it's a journalistic point here because Kara and I never thought about doing that. And the editor of our piece asked that question, but he only asked it like three days before the <laughs> deadline. And we said there was no way we could do it. But in retrospect, it would have been interesting if we tried. Right. To, for the, what the total cost yeah. of the safety yeah. net is, sure. Yeah. 
yeah, I'm sure it's achievable. Maybe we'll work on that. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, listening to you, I'm sure there's some folks who listen and think, oh, you know, that all sounds good to me. And, you know, from the CBC perspective, it's, you know, this is fact, right? We rely on a very small number of people to finance these programs that are so important. Um, but there's also a risk. That's what makes it more risky. And so, you know, do you have a perspective on, on that risk? And, you know, can you talk a little bit about how the risks have now increased thanks to federal tax reform? Well, exactly. The risks have increased uh, because of federal tax reform, because of the limit on state and local tax deductions. The very rich are now paying much more in federal taxes in New York than they would in Florida or Texas or Washington State. Um, and this has greatly um, affected the financial consideration of whether they're going to stay or not. And we worked out some numbers about what if only 1% of the 1% left. Well, you know, you could get to $132 million if the 1% of the 1% left. But what if 10% of the 1% left? Or what if 20% of the 1% left? Um, there is no sign that there is migration yet. Or if there is, we can't track it yet. But clearly, it is a risk um, in what we are. I mean, there are, people tell me anecdotal stories all the time. I know blah, 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 who bought a house. Most of them actually have two houses anyway, one well, someplace and one else, and they can just live someplace half the time. But we can't find any evidence in the numbers yet. Kara, talk a little bit more about what makes up the safety net. I mean, we've mentioned a couple of examples, but it's so extensive that we should sort of give an outline of what it, it really looks like. There are the federal programs. Uh, there are the added state programs that we've mentioned around uh, SNAP, otherwise known as food stamps, and cash uh, grants. Um, what else? So we thought of the safety net very broadly about policies, and actual funding that help people at the bottom in New York. And so minimum wage is probably the, mo the single most important um, piece of that. So uh, the, it's, I think that the wages went up by almost 90% over the course of five years for people who were making minimum wage. And for airport wor workers, it's going to go up even more to $19 an hour. And depending on what happens upstate, um, in the next year or two, it seems likely to me that there will be some way for the minimum wage to continue going up. Uh, right. The program the state instituted uh, has different levels for different regions, and there's some things that are sort of to be determined in, in other places outside of the city and the surrounding suburbs. So and we have to hits, keep an eye right, on Right. It. it hits $15 an hour at the, at the beginning of next year, the end of this year, for workers in New York City. And so that's a tremendous wage from making um, $9 an hour just a couple of years ago. And so that really has been sort of the biggest marker. People have income to spend. There's some evidence that uh, quick service restaurants and retail in neighborhoods that have a lot of minimum wage workers are doing very well because people have money to spend. And the most important piece within that is that the ratio of how much people are spending on housing to their income is actually going down. So even though it seems like uh, housing in New York is you know, chronically unaffordable, in fact, as wages have gone up, 
you know, people have more income left over after they pay their rent. And that is especially true for anybody with a regulated apartment or who lives in public housing. At the same time, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong from your research, but there are elements of the safety net around housing that have also been increased. I mean, that's been a key part of the de Blasio administration, certainly. I don't know that there's been that much actually that's changed at the state level, um, but that's going to be a discussion, as you say, in the piece next year. <laughs> but going back and currently, certainly the city has increased the, the housing safety net uh, since de Blasio took office. And the idea there is that housing is kind of the precipitating event for other forms of insecurity. So if you can comfortably afford the rent on your apartment, you can deal with some of the other um, issues that come up. You can uh, pay for food. You can make sure your kids have um, what they need to get to school. And um, as soon as you are insecure in your housing, all of that really goes away. And so the emphasis on housing has been really important in those terms. And so one thing that helps is um, a huge increase in funding for tenants who have to go to housing court. So about a quarter of tenants now have representation. Um, and that's significantly up. I mean, they've, they, that's only been recently, in, you know, the last couple of years really increased by the de Blasio administration with the city council. And that's set to ramp up even further. Exactly. So it's now costing about $93 million to fund that. It's going to go up to $150 million. And by the administration's count, there are 70,000 people who are still in their homes who might otherwise have been evicted. It used to be, I think, about 1% of tenants actually had representation. And they're adding to the safety net on transportation. The The fair fares program is about to, to kick in. Uh, I mean, so so this safety net is not only the largest and the strongest in the country, perhaps, but it's it's growing. Right. And so if you look at we did one contrast with Seattle, where they have an enormous housing problem because rents have skyrocketed with their booming economy. They have a growing homelessness problem. Actually, everyone I talk to in Seattle hates Amazon these days. <laughs> but they have almost nothing to help. The state legislature prohibits rent regulation. Uh, the most, uh, the the longest you can get help for is six months. Um, so that's an example of how, and this is a moderate state where, um, they, where there isn't any help. Or you can go to Texas and Georgia, where getting evicted for you, from your place takes no effort at all on the landlord's part. The laws are all designed for the landlords to evict anyone who's not paying the rent. Evicting people in New York for not paying the rent is not so easy. Um, so that you know, it it really came home to me in doing. I had suspected this when we started work on this project, but it, we live in different countries, mm. um, and you know, um, being poor in Texas and Georgia is really hard, and it's not offset by lower costs, and it's not offset by economic and they haven't raised the minimum wage in those states. They're still at the 725 federal level. It's, it, the contrast is enormous. And one of, the, one of the purposes of the piece was that that's rarely discussed in New York. It's rarely discussed about how much we do. It's only discussed in terms of how much more we can do. And I think it's important to know how much we do. And is that an argument for not doing more? I mean, what, you know, I mean, I think that's, that's where the rubber will meet the road, certainly. I mean, even if people 
come to more recognition of what is in place relative to other places. As you even note in the piece, uh, poverty is still pervasive in in New York City. Uh, You know, people are really struggling. There's 60,000-ish homeless people. Um, So the the conversation certainly, as we already alluded to in 2019, going to be about how to tweak, how to change, but also, of course, how to add. Let's do this in two parts. I'll do the political part, and Kara Kara will do the policy part. So here's the political part. We now have a completely democratic state government, and as a matter of fact, we have this enormous change within the state Senate. It's not just that it's democratic. Many more very progressive state senators um, have been elected. So what's the conversation going to be starting? It's already started. How can we improve rent regulation in New York, especially ending vacancy decontrol? Should we raise the millionaire's tax so that we tax the 1% even more? And should we start moving towards some sort of Medicare for all single-payer health care? And what other parts of the safety net can be improved? The question that needs to be asked is what can we afford And in a political sense, what risks are we running? We do not know where the tipping point is for people to decide New York is too expensive to live. They have not decided that yet, to my knowledge. I can find no evidence that they have decided that, to my knowledge. But we'll see. And, yeah. and the danger, of course, is it's, well, it's not something we'll know until people have actually left and they take their revenue with them. Right. We won't know. And this won't. is, and before you jump in, just quickly, Kara, the, this is what you just expressed is something that's clearly on the governor's mind. I mean, the governor is very aware of these points and makes them himself. And seemingly the incoming leaders of the Senate Democratic Conference, Andrew Stewart-Cousins and others, certainly have a sense of this because they've been trying to quell fears that they're coming in to raise taxes. That doesn't mean the conference won't push for that, but they've at least been talking about being aware of those risks and, and, and those worries that some have. Right. And But the Assembly has never been interested in those risks because the Assembly has been willing to raise them. Yes. And uh, politically, if you want to, one more political in the weeds part is that while uh, many progressives were elected in the city... Uh, progressive, but not nearly as progressive Democrats uh, won crucial seats in Long Island, Westchester, and a few other areas. And the thinking is that they will be a restraining force, but we will see. Well, and and everybody recognizes in that conference, I think, or many of them, that if they want to keep this majority, they can't risk those seats, but that, that might not prevail. But I talked to one of the people who I think uh, who knows most about politics and the and the, who I trust a lot and uh, it was on a different issue but this person's note to me at the end said but everything I have said to you may not be true because the the ground is shifting underneath us as we speak the election shifted the ground the attitudes of Americans throughout the country shifted the ground so I'm, I'm of the mind that some of the conventional wisdom, and this is the conventional wisdom, that the suburban Democrats won't be that progressive. I don't, I'm, I don't trust the conventional wisdom. So I think one thing that is important to think about is how the city can become more efficient and operate more efficiently. Great. And so 
one program that I happened upon that everyone said this is working is CUNY ASAP, which is uh, Accelerated Study and Associate Programs at uh, CUNY Community Colleges. And the idea is by offering tuition support and paying for Metro cards and books and also providing better advising, better scheduling, better access to community that a whole lot more community college students will finish their associates and also move on to get bachelors. And so you take a program like that and it started with 1,000 students 10 years ago and it's now ramped up to 25,000 students, which is a quarter of all of the community college enrollees. It costs $2.5 million. And so when we're talking in these enormous sums of money, there's really not that much money. And if that's the kind of thing that can push native New Yorkers into getting real middle-class jobs that can support their families, then that's the kind of thing that the city just needs to be thinking, where else can we do this? How many more young people can we get into programs like this? And you know, where are the other spots that we can do it? And that's not... That's not a 25-year investment. That's not three-year-olds who are going to see make good on their promise in 25 years. That long-term thinking, I think, is equally essential, but it's also, I think, a matter sometimes of just finding policies that pay off a little bit more quickly. I would do want to note that, and I think this is a, for, a note for the podcast, that when the story came out, Carol Kellerman, the outgoing uh, president of the CBC, <laughs> emailed me that she is the one who worked on and implemented the program in the first right. few months, and that the MetroCard idea was hers, <laughs> and that it, the studies show that the MetroCard is probably the most essential part of the program. That's what the right. students I talked to told me. Right, yeah, and no, it, no. it lends the support for the Fair Fares program, which CBC also supported. Um, but you know, I want to pick up on your point about efficient, right? Because let's not take for granted that all the billions of dollars we spent on these programs are being effectively used. And I can't kind of underline that enough because yes, I think the expansion of Medicaid was very successful and we've driven down the rate of the uninsured here to very low levels. And that is a remarkable accomplishment. At the same time, we know that despite the achievements of the MRT, we are still spending way more than virtually all the other states on the per-enrollee per rates on uh, the disabled and the elderly. And there is room to reform those services without compromising quality to drive down those costs and save dollars, right? So they've done some. They could do more. Similarly, I think ASAP is an example of a program that was piloted, evaluated, and then scaled up. And I think for some of the other programs, they don't undergo enough about, you know, regular evaluation to understand how they could be tweaked and improved to be more efficient. And, you know, I think that's important. And Kara and I spend this enormous amount of our reporting time on the minimum wage issue because it just sort of fascinates the two of us. And as of the moment, there, we can find no bad consequences from the increase in the minimum wage. Now, the, any business person, most of the business people who hear that will just scream out mm -hmm. loud at the moment because all we hear from them is how hard their lives have been. But we, the restaurants are regarded as being in the front and center. There are more restaurants than ever before. The number of employees are more. We have more employees than ever before, and the wages are higher than ever before. So individual Restaurants may go out of business because of the problems, but there's someone else to take its place. Nevertheless, uh, the increase in the minimum wage is unprecedented in such a short period of time. 
it could come back to be a big problem. So, you know, what we have all these things we really have to track. We have to track the minimum wage. We have to track whether the very rich are going to leave. And, you know, looming out there is we've had this enormous economic boom, what I like to call the Bloomberg de Blasio boom. It will come to an end sometime. I don't know when. I don't think next year, but maybe. Um, And the pressures will really ratchet up rather quickly. Well, that goes back to efficiency as well. And, you know, I was just going to note, we're talking obviously healthcare and some things that relate to education. Those are always the two biggest expenditures in state and city, you know, spending in a lot of ways. But there are a lot of other areas within education and also within city spending. Let's just start with the city where there's clearly waste, there's this extensive, you know, these extensive programs that de Blasio has instituted and he's increased the city payroll and doesn't seem to be that worried about cutting any fat. So that that might be forced uh, down his throat at some point, but it's also an opportunity to reevaluate the programs that are in place to try to help people, whether it's workforce training or preventative services that they provide to, you know, people who are associated with, you know, children's services, et cetera, to really think about some of those things. One piece, we didn't go into it that much uh, in the article, but it came up a lot in reporting, is that one piece of the patchwork is philanthropy, and it's a pretty enormous piece. And because there's so many different hands who are helping with so many different issues, it actually makes evaluation really tough in certain areas because there's just things that uh, philanthropists want to spend money on and it goes to that, and it may be working, and it may be not. But then, how does the city track that overall effort against what's going on? I wanted to—that's one of the last two things I wanted to ask about. And Maria might have other questions, but I just want to remind everybody that we're talking with Greg David and Kara Eisenpress. They're uh, the co-authors of a new, recently re- uh, published piece in Crane's New York Business: The State of Inequality. New York's safety net is made possible by the very inequity it targets, and they both teach at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. Um, so you can find their article, of course, and you can take one of their classes, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but they're, they're doing uh, this work for, for both the school and Cranes. Yes. I just want to interject that if people are interested in the pieces from Georgia and Washington and um, Texas, they're also available on the Ravage Fiscal Reporting site, and we're compiling them all. There are more pieces to come out of Georgia and Texas. So if you just okay. Google Ravage Fiscal Reporting, look under Reporting um, Projects, you can read them all. Great. So I wanted to follow up on that. The nonprofit sector in New York City is immense, and a lot of services in the safety net are provided. I mean, the food bank is highlighted, and that might be you know at the top. But also, it always strikes me that this is an area of inefficiency, that there's a lot of redundant services. And this is not to say that any small nonprofits or big nonprofits are, are bad organizations that should be out of business. But it's just, you know, the city's so vast, this sector's so vast, it, they, there's so many important services being provided. But also, this is where city and state money goes, often without a lot of evaluation. Do we have any sense of how that fits into this picture? I know you already said sort of no, but I, I just wanted to maybe, you know, ask it in a different way. It's not, I don't actually have a great answer to that. I mean, I think certainly there are places where the administration feels that uh, small on the ground nonprofits can do the best work. Likewise, some big on the ground nonprofits are also doing great work. 
but it means that in terms of thinking about how the city can be more efficient and evaluate programs, that there just isn't going to be the same kind of information. You know, I guess I, I guess I would say it's just a question of whether you believe in the market or not. Mm -hmm. You know, the nonprofit world operates like the market. Uh, people go out and raise money, and they implement it, and they stay in business as long as the people who give them money think they're doing a good thing. That's um, fair. In general, I believe in the markets. So. Yeah, I guess I'm also thinking about the ways that city government, including you know the city council with their all the discretionary funding, you know. It's all nonprofit based, and that very often is city council members, you know, just continuing to fund the nonprofits in their districts that provide often good services, but not necessarily with that much rigorous, you know, oversight. So, so the answer to that is a journalistic answer. <laughs> yes, um, we need to make sure there's a vibrant, um, locally based journalism operation that operations that are monitoring that. Here, here. So I, I have what I have a comment and then one more question. I just want to pick up a thread from what Greg said earlier about a potential recession and how that forces you know reductions in the city. But you know there's also the question of the state, right? And the state has it's facing a budget gap. The budget gap is much larger actually than what's being reported because it assumes that governor will continue to freeze the operations and the funding of state agencies, which he's done for a number of years and which are really under a strain now. Um, and, the, you know, there is going to be this pressure to expand, but what will happen, right, in the case of a recession is not only will there be job losses at the lower end for some of these folks who will then be, you know, fall back into the safety net and pressures to enhance the safety net. What happens then is that, you know, the revenues from the personal income tax will shrink and the state budget, you know, relies on about a third of its, of its revenue comes from personal income taxes. And the progressive nature of our personal income tax, meaning we tax the, the highest income earners the most, makes it much more volatile. And so what we'll see is a dramatic rejection in those taxes from these folks. And it makes it a very hard balancing act and very hard to then go back and support any kind of expansion. So uh, this may be the worst thing that Andrew Cuomo has done. New York has a reserve, New York State has a reserve of $2 billion. The budget's $160 billion, give or take. California has a reserve of 13 plus billion dollars. Now, California is more at risk than we are because even more of their income taxes come from the rich and from capital gains. But we're number two in that category. So yes, now what I think is interesting or ironic, and Ben, you just brought it up, the question is is whether the economy will turn down on their watch. Mm -hmm. Will de Blasio have to cope with it in the city? Will Cuomo have to cope with it in the state? Um, I, I'm sort of torn about this, but frankly, I would like to see them have to deal with the consequences of what they have done. And now let's, we, I should give the mayor credit. He's got a much bigger reserve. Sort He's, of. Yeah, well, he does have a sort yeah, six billion. Sort of, but and to, to credit the governor, he did get the state out of a very big fiscal right. hole when he came and on. So he's shown with, that he's got the chops to Right, and to they've been working with different I, pictures. I would only say he's shown he had the chops. Ha, okay, <laughs> fair, fair, fair. You, so, want, you had yeah, a question. Yeah, I had one yes. last question, which is... And I have one um, more you know, give sort of, to give a preview a little bit of the work you've done in the other places, what have you seen in these other places that New York should think about that looks like it may be, you know, as effective or more effective than what we're doing now? 
if anything. I don't think we found anything. <laughs> wow. They, found they sometimes were able to do better stories because they could find really specific issues like credits for childcare were putting working parents in a huge lurch mm -hmm. in Texas. So things that were missing. Things that were right, missing. Right. So they could do these really specific stories. And we ultimately wrote a positive story, which honestly is a little more boring journalistically um, because you're asking people to tell you all the great stuff that they're doing. But they, you know. You're they, saying about New York. About New York. Right. Exactly. That New York has this strong safety net. And of course, we, we acknowledge all of uh the problems and know that uh, the shortcomings in New York are cold comfort to people who are enduring them. But um, in other states, they were just able to hone in on humongous gaps that were harming people. In addition to what's on the website, the Texas Tribune, which is our partner in Texas, has done a long series under the idea of the cost of being poor in Texas that went far beyond this work. It could make you cry. Mm -hmm. Um, all the ways Texas makes being poor costly. And so the answer is nobody found anything. So I guess uh, my last question, actually you, you mentioned it and I was going to sneak it uh, in here to you, Greg, is about Amazon and about workforce development and about you know sort of connecting. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to even do with Amazon, but this this – idea of workforce development, and of course, part of the Amazon agreement at this point is also that they'll do some workforce development, and there's obviously some that's already occurring in the city. Um, but is is that a part of the safety net that we need to think about more? Is it something that came up in your work as an important point people stressed? Well, I would say we would say that workforce development's inadequate in the city, Right? Wouldn't we agree with that? Right. And that it's a huge opportunity for both the city and the nonprofit sector that if it can get young New Yorkers into the position where they can get good jobs, that's better for New Yorkers and it reduces the reliance on the safety net. Now, I have spent a lot of time reporting this, so let's go through the facts quickly. Uh, New York has got a much more diversified tech sector than Silicon Valley. Not good enough, but twice as diverse, twice as many African-Americans, many more women, especially more many women entrepreneurs. We have lots of efforts underway to make sure that New Yorkers get trained to um, take these great tech jobs that are booming in the city, not just Amazon, but Google. Uh, we wrote a huge story about it um, in, the, in the early spring. Um, there's this nonprofit in Queens called Pursuit, which is doing really good work. I've been talking to people at LaGuardia Community College, 3,000 students in various tech programs. We, after a difficult fight in the city council, we created a tech hub at Union Square where nonprofits are going to rat, ratchet up their efforts to train New Yorkers. Pursuit tells me that they enter, that people entering their program come from families making $18,000, and those people leave and generally very quickly are making $80,000 when they're trained. It is an enormous opportunity. There are already many great efforts underway in the city. We need to fund them. We should be asking Amazon to fund them. Uh, it is up to Amazon to work with LaGuardia Community College, to not just Cornell Tech, where you know the great engineers will come from, but other places to do that. And it is a great opportunity for us. I guess one of the ways I'm thinking about Amazon with relation to your story is 
does it just sort of fit into this picture where in some ways it will increase the need for a safety net uh, because, you know, it's it's part of this larger picture of rising rent costs and, you know, things like that. But at the same time, you're bringing in people who will pay those taxes and, and fund the safety net. Uh, or, or <laughs> well, first of all, we don't know. We no, don't. I, we do. I think okay. I think the rent thing is so out of control and so untrue. Mm-hmm. There is no city in America that can absorb Amazon more. The twenty. I I was having this intense conversation with these LaGuardia Community College students uh, this week, and I said to them, "So, what percentage of the New York workforce is this Amazon increase?" Fifty percent. <laughs> right. It's less. Than half a percent. What percent is twenty? Even if they're all twenty-five thousand for elsewhere, which they're not, and we're talking about over almost a decade, we have eight point five headed to eight point six million people. New York can absorb this. And by the way, they're not all going to live in Long Island City. By the way, where Amazon's going to build its headquarters, there isn't much there. Um, and lastly, when they say to me, oh, well, we should just build housing there, I keep saying to them, with what money? With what money? Uh, it isn't just Amazon. Amazon, the Google expansion into another building, suggests that we will have 200,000 high-paying tech jobs in New York in the five, six, seven years. We will be a real rival to Silicon Valley why wouldn't you want to be in the forefront of the most important industry in our time? And isn't that good for the city? Well, we will leave it there, I think, with that argument uh, about Amazon and how that fits in. And I think it'll be an interesting part of the discussion here um, as people uh, take in your piece and think about you know, where the city's at in terms of, of all the things that, that relate to some of these socioeconomic conditions. Thank you, Greg David, Kara Eisenpress, both from Crane's New York Business and the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Bye.